you could have more fulfillment and ease in your professional and personal life and still be ambitious. Join me, Kathy Onetto, founder of Sustainable Ambition, for conversations with experts, authors, and friends on what it means to live with sustainable ambition. Learn concepts, tips, and tools to craft a fulfilling career on your terms while still being ambitious and avoiding burnout. For show notes from this episode, visit sustainableambition.com slash podcast. Now, let's learn more to help you craft your career to support your life from decade to decade. On to today's conversation. All right, welcome back, everyone. I'm so excited to welcome Layla Taraf to the show, who is the Chief People Officer of Allbirds, a sustainable footwear and apparel brand, and author of the recently released book, Strong Like Water, How I Found the Courage to Lead with Love in Business and in Life. Layla, I'm so happy to have you joining me today. Thank you for being on. Thank you, Kathy. I'm so happy to be here. So before we get started, let me properly introduce you to Layla. Layla Taraf is a senior human resources executive with over 25 years of professional experience. After graduating with her MBA from the Haas School of Business at the the University of California at Berkeley, where Layla and I met, she became one of the founding team members at walmart.com. She then served as chief people officer at Pete's Coffee and Tea, an iconic Bay Area premium coffee company and as I mentioned, is currently Chief People Officer at Allbirds. She is also a trusted advisor to entrepreneurs and investors and is a regular guest lecturer at Berkeley Law School. So first, Layla, I want to say that your book is beautifully written and you're so generous with your vulnerability in sharing your personal story so that we can all learn through you. So thank you. And In the book, you talk about your personal transformation and your professional transformation as a leader. And I think it's so relevant right now in terms of what people are looking for in leaders, especially coming out of the pandemic. My hope is that your enlightenment will help other professionals recognize the changes they can make to become better leaders. So to start, I would love for you to share a little bit about your personal and professional background to set the context for our conversation about this transformation. You know, I don't want to give away everything in the book, um, but I wanted you to um, just wanted to hear from you as to what you think is important to highlight about your story that sets the context for who you were as a leader early in your career. Sure, sure. Thank you. Well, I am the eldest of three uh, born to Lebanese parents, and we moved to the States uh, when I was a little girl. We moved to Las Vegas in the early 70s, um, just as the Civil War was heating up in Lebanon. My father was in the casino business, so we moved um, to Las Vegas. Um, and, and I grew up very much bicultural, right? I learned how to be a chameleon very early in my life, right? So Lebanese at home, American during the day. And, um, and there are beautiful things that come out of that. But one of the things that, that I think, um, happens is you are sort of both and neither. And so very quickly, um, from a very young age, I, I was, um, I was living in this duality, as I as I 
I don't think I would have phrased it that way when I was younger. And on top of that, my mom and dad had a bit of a tough marriage. And since I was the oldest, I took on the role of being the mediator. So again, I was sort of stuck in between two very, um, you know, two camps. And um, my father, um, to me, seemed to be strong and capable. He had sort of a bad temper. And my mom was um, a little more exposed, a little more vulnerable. And as a child, I, I really just subconsciously said, well, I want to be like that because that looks like it's power to me. And so that was the expression of power I adopted. And I took that with me and I became sort of the quintessential uh, overachiever, immigrant overachiever. I met you in business school and you you get to business school. You're like, oh, yes, everyone's just like me. This is great. And so when I got out of business school and I started uh, to move into more senior managerial roles, like, like many other overachievers, I was focused on getting things done, like achievement, super capable. Let me show you how it's done. And um, the bigger the problem, the better, and the faster I can solve it, the better. And so that's really how I held myself at the beginning of, of my career, that my value came through my achievement of things, of getting things done, and really less focused on, um, on bringing others along or how that would make people feel. Not that I had any sort of malice, but it just wasn't even on my radar. It really just wasn't wasn't my focus. Really, the focus was solving problems. That's great. And you talk about that early in the book where you share during your time at walmart.com, like you were, as you said, you were, I said you were tough in, in my own language, but really you're saying it a little bit more clearly, which is like kind of achievement focused. And you were given some counsel early in that time <laughs> that you talk about in the book. But I'm curious, even from your perspective now, looking back, if you were to give yourself some leadership advice at that stage, because you just said it's not, it wasn't from a stage of malice. It's just like, I wasn't aware. So, you know, from a context of, you know, looking back then and also for the benefit of other people learning to be leaders early in their careers, what what advice would you have given yourself back then? I think the same advice that I got from that CEO who basically said to me, the point is not getting things done, it's bringing others along. But you know that saying that that um, the, uh, the, the, the teacher appears when the student is ready? Yes. You know that saying. And the, the challenge is if it's a blind spot for you, if then you need to hear it a lot of different ways before it resonates. And I guess what I would say to people who are starting their career, if you're going to be in any sort of leadership role, that's a lesson you're going to have to learn. And it feels very weird at first, right? Because what 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 enables you to be successful in the first half of your career is by um, getting things done, by accomplishing things, by being credible, by becoming a subject matter expert, um, going to business school, going to graduate school. And then at some point, it you have to shift your lens from me to we, as I call it, and, and really be there for others to be a mentor, to be a servant leader. And that's a hard switch because you're like, but look at, look at where I've gotten focusing on myself and what I can deliver. Uh, if you continue to do that, uh, then usually you're not a very effective leader because in the end, it should be, you know, 
90% on your people and what they can get done. I, you know, percentage wise versus the other way around. And that's the, that's the journey we all take in our, in our growth as, as leaders. I really appreciate that distinction and the calling out that like, there is a moment in time where it shifts because there are a lot of people that I talk to who are in senior leadership positions and they, they really think they have to have all the answers. And if, if they don't, um, they feel like they're, the perception is of people around them that they don't know what they're doing. And then they start to equate it to imposter syndrome. You know, I'm a fake because I don't know what I'm doing and I don't have all the answers. And it just seems like it's, it's perhaps the incorrect mindset. Um, and, it, and it puts us a little bit in a bind because you, it, it's almost like a downward spiral because you start to behave in a way that really isn't consistent with who you need to be in that moment. So I'm curious if you have some thoughts on that. I think that's absolutely right. And also what that does is it prevents you consciously or subconsciously from hiring people that know more than you. And uh, because you feel, you might feel threatened, right? So in, in order for you to build, build the best team ever, you just need to get the best people at whatever you're looking for. And if part of your, if part of your filter is, oh, but I need to know more than them, then you're, you're already putting, uh, you're already, you're already tamping down the opportunities for that team. Um, I, in the book, I, I wrote about this when I came back from um, my, my one month off and my team, <clears throat> they, they basically filled in all the gaps of what I'd been doing <laughs> the first few weeks. I'm like, oh, oh, okay. You got that. Okay. All right. And I thought, oh my gosh, did I just work myself out of the job? And what I realized, what, no, I then could elevate. And if you don't value those skills, which um, are largely invisible, which is sort of removing the obstacles, greasing the skids, having the side conversations, enabling things to happen, those are the, the skills of truly great leaders. And, and usually they're invisible. And um, and you need to value those because if you don't, you're going to go right back trying to actually execute on things. Yes, I'm glad you mentioned that moment in the book. I loved that observation that you made when you went back and you realized this notion of, again, just as you said, you were able to elevate and really take on those other elements of leadership that are really important. So, um, you know, so I wanted to go back to the book and you, you write about three significant personal losses, the deaths of your husband and mother and father in the span of about five or more years, which put you on this journey of self-discovery. And you really did the personal work and it is work of transformation. And you were chief people officer at Pete's at the time that you experienced all that loss. And you share how you evolved as a leader and became more emotionally available um, earning the name The Velvet Hammer. <laughs> and you say, letting go of my hero persona was what finally allowed me to bring some softness and vulnerability into my work to start to show up more authentically. So I was wondering if you could share a little bit more about how did you see that manifest in like who you were being in the office? And importantly, also, what was different for you operating from that space? Good, really good question. I mean, it was very subtle. I wish I could say I woke up one day and I was, you know, this different person. Also, um, there, 
I didn't have a, a really um, tough top note. So it wasn't obvious that I was avoiding hard conversations. I would just sort of skate by them, right? Um, how it changed was I... Um, I realized I was avoiding the uncomfortable, hard conversations and sticky situations by over-focusing on the problem that needed to be fixed. So as I started to develop the ability to stay with that discomfort, I built my emotional resilience and I just made more space for those challenging conversations. Whereas before I would have just sort of cut them off. I'm like, you're just not looking at it. Here, here's the answer. And that may have been true, but that wasn't the point. I started paying as much attention to the context as much as the content, right? The feelings that were either being expressed or repressed, the body language. And over time, um, the result was I was able to have deeper, more meaningful connections so that people really felt comfortable telling me what was really going on. Uh, so that's that's really how it, it showed up. And what did you notice in terms of, I certainly people recognized it and started to describe you differently. Were you starting to see an impact in terms of the results you were seeing in the organization based on you showing up that way? I think people felt like they could be more honest about how they were feeling and about how things were going, which allowed us to have richer conversations, which actually in the end allowed us to come up with better solutions, mm -hmm. right? Because we were at, able to have more robust uh, conversations. I also think it contributed to greater psychological safety, right? Within the organization, because people weren't um, as worried. Um, my team was never worried. I have a very, very solid relationship with, with my team. And when I say my team, I mean my direct reports as well as the executive leadership team. But I suspect that broader within the organization because I've been told that, um, that my reputation was that I was firm yet kind, but like, don't break the rules. Uh, and I'm still like that, but, um, but I just make a little more space for, for, the conversations. Mm. Yeah. So you write about that in, in the book, this idea that people found you firm yet kind, direct, direct yet curious. And you talk about how you learned that being soft turned out to be strong. You know, I, in reading Bob Iger's book, um, he, in the right of a lifetime, he also talks about this notion of being kind, not nice. So I was wondering if you could give us an example of like, what does firm but kind look like? And how, how yeah. is being soft actually really strong? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the big question. Being able to say the hard thing without emotionally disconnecting, that's hard to do. Right. I think people think, oh, I need to give I need to give negative feedback. So I'm just going to and, and it's hard to do. Right. Because you don't want to be there with the discomfort of you're saying it and what the reaction might be the other person. And so you kind of package it up and you just throw it over the fence. <clears throat> That's not kind. Right. But if you are able to stay present and emotionally connected with the other person while delivering that message, that's kind. And the best analogy I can think of is how, if you're a parent, how you would guide your child towards what's right and wrong. You still love them when you set boundaries for them 
it's the same thing in business. You don't have to uh, disconnect emotionally or turn into another person. Uh, I think people think, oh, I can't be nice to this person because if I have to give them hard feedback, I won't be able to be nice to them. You can still be kind to to your to your distinction. And, and how soft is strong? I, I mean, that goes to everything we've been talking about over the last year uh, in terms of vulnerability, right? It takes courage to... Um, stay with the discomfort to say the thing that you know might be triggering for people and um, and showing a little more of yourself. And so in that way, what is soft vulnerability becomes true strength. Mm. Yeah. So I was also curious, Leila, you know, how it felt to make this shift. So you, you said and shared earlier, like in your career, you met um, typical measures of success, kind of checking off the to-dos, driving for productivity, problem solving, getting those results. And you were recognized as having potential, got promoted, earned big jobs. Does success, and I don't even know if that's the right word, to be honest, like, does it feel or look different as a heart-centered leader? I mean, I still love to achieve big audacious goals. It, it, it is always something that kind of gets me going. I think the biggest difference is that now I'm much clearer that the real success is doing it together as much mm. as possible. Like <clears throat> the, the real, that's where the real joy comes in. <clears throat> Cause um, if you, you know, get to the mountaintop and you've left a trail of dead bodies behind you, not so fun. <laughs> right. <clears throat> and I'm just very clear now, not everybody is going to make the journey, but even if you part ways with folks along the journey, if you do it in um, a wholehearted way that, you know, that leaves them whole, where it's just a natural, you know, coming apart. I, I think that's what real success is, is growth mm -hmm. without losing your humanity. Mm -hmm. You know, in a prior interview, I kind of talked about how perhaps humanism is the antonym of professionalism. You know, it's kind of, as you're saying, you know, we, we go into these professional roles and jobs where, you know, I think oftentimes in the past, what's been rewarded is kind of being a robot, right? Shutting down those emotions, um, coming at things, um, just kind of from a serious manner and, and this change in context towards being a little bit more soft, being vulnerable is really a shift of, of more human, you know, being really being human in the workplace. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because we started saying, uh, bring your whole self to work, gosh, you know, uh, a dozen years ago or more. And I think this is a natural extension of that because if you bring your whole self, you bring your 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 brain, <laughs> your heart, uh, your your emotions, your relationships. That is what it really means. That's the natural outcome of bringing your whole self to work. I also think that cultural norms are shifting, mm. right? <clears throat> and we are moving from um, you know I think sort of strict patriarchal norms. Um, to allow more space for men and women to lead in a more um, in a more wholehearted way, right? And I think these false um, these false paradoxes that we've always held, which is if I'm going to be tough, then I can't be kind. 
I, I, I think we're recognizing that really they are false paradoxes, that that really the, the magic and the art is how you how you combine them and how you infuse your strength with softness and how you infuse your softness with strength. And it's going to look different for each one of us because we're different mm. people. But the trick is how you really blend those two things together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I loved how in the book, you really talk about these different paradoxes that, you know, exist um, in many measures. But um, I wanted to, I, w- I did want to ask you about this whole notion of bringing your whole self to work, because, you know, when I think about sustainable ambition, I think um, an important part of it is the workplace. And yet most people don't have a lot of control over their workplaces and where they where they you know, the environment and culture of that. And you share about the values work you championed at Pete's and a key element of that was embedding this idea of people being able to bring their full selves to work. And at least in reading that I've done, sometimes I read that where people are like, that's just corporate marketing speak. Like, is that really real? And I've talked to some leaders where, you know, um, yes, that's real in their organizations. Um, but as you share in the book as well, that you guys really seem to leave it, live it at Pete's, those values and the work you did um, created that environment. So I was wondering if you, if there are any lessons you can share with leaders on how can they create a work environment that allows people to bring their full selves to work? I think you're right, Kathy. I think, you know, people say, bring your whole self to work. And there's all these, all, all these buzzy words out there now, and it's harder to do. Uh, I think people want to do it. Right. And so I'll just, I'll just throw out another couple of uh, concepts. I think that we hear a lot of um, that I think go into allowing people to bring their whole self to work. One is creating psychological safety. And the other is really promoting a growth mindset. Mm. And so, you know, there's really, there's really two sides to having people feel comfortable bringing their whole selves to work. One is the company side where we need to create the conditions for people to feel like they can take, you know, well thought through risks, um, And if they fail, they fail, but they learn from those failures, right? And being able to build enough trust so that they feel they can do this. And then on the people side, it's um, really championing and embracing a growth mindset so that people can get comfortable with, with really pushing the boundaries and failing so we can grow and learn. So there's a piece that the company owns, and that comes through leadership, you know, the founders, the CEOs, they set the tone for the organization. And so if they're not um, behaving in a way that will promote psychological safety, it's not going to happen. That one is definitely top down. It's not even an HR thing. HR can can champion it, but if the leaders don't embody it, it's not going to happen. And then the other is uh, on the people side that every person needs to um, have a little courage and have this belief that um, that they can grow by pushing the envelope and, and making mistakes. It actually takes more courage to sit with discomfort, right? Examine it and, and from there make a judgment uh, and decide how to move forward than to avoid the short-term pain of that discomfort. That has been my biggest learning. 
Yes, you you have shared that now more than once. This notion of like it's courageous to sit with and go through as opposed to avoid. And I think you you know we think that it's courageous putting the shield up, you know, and protecting ourselves from things. And what I'm hearing you say, it's really much more courageous to actually be with it. That's right. And on the company side, you need to create the environment where someone can feel safe enough to be able to do that. So if someone admits a mistake, if you come down on them hard uh, and, and, and personally, well, that's not going <laughs> to encourage mm-hmm. them to do that again. So again, it's a reciprocal relationship. Mm-hmm. And on that psychological safety piece, are there elements that you have found that really work in an environment to create that psychological safety? So you just created one, you mentioned one, which is like, you know, how you one responds to when mistakes are made. Um, are there other kind of cultural norms? And I'm, I am hearing you, you're saying like it has to start from the top. So I don't know if you even at Pete's or at Allbirds, if you're having conversations about that because of how much I, I would assume you like you really believe in this. So it's kind of like how important is it for people to kind of be um, you know, I, I'm sure you champion this. So if you're not seeing it, are you having conversations about it or, or actions that you've taken to kind of really kind of create that psychological safety within organizations? I do. It's hard to do. I talk about <laughs> it all the time. <laughs> um, you know, some of the behaviors are um, <clears throat> that the leadership is approachable, mm. that you invite feedback. Um, that you actually model the openness and the vulnerability that you're saying you want others to see. Uh, and it, it, you know, drop, dropping, dropping your, your uh, facade, you know, being accessible. Th- those are the types of behaviors. Mm. Um, and not all leaders, you know, are, are fully formed. <laughs> so it's, it's a process, right? It's, it's uh, um, giving feedback, having them hear it, having them shift, coming together as a leadership team. That's, that's the journey. I appreciate you saying that too, because, uh, you know, I wonder if around leadership too, uh, we need to give everyone like a little bit of grace. You know, I think even when people first become managers, even for those individuals who start reporting into them, they just expect this perfectly formed manager, you know, it's kind of like, you know, we're going to also managers slash leaders, right? It takes two to tango. You know, I know I've had in my career where I've had a manager where in their prior um, assignment, they got, you know, bad marks from certain people who work for them. And to me, they were my best manager. And so, you know, sometimes people don't take responsibility for their role in a relationship, right? Or to just give a little bit of grace to people as we go on our journeys of becoming better leaders. That is such a good point. And I don't know, I don't know if this is a generational thing, but we have a really young company at Allbirds. And I find that, um, I don't know if this is a millennial mindset, they're so hard on themselves. They expect, I think it's an extension of how crazy everything has gotten and how competitive it is to get into schools and get good marks. And I find it's hard to um, 
it's hard to uh, be graceful and generous with others when you're not with yourself. Like it kind of goes back to that uh, self-compassion. And so what I try to do as much as possible is to show my, my fallibility as much as I possibly can. And I will use examples like, you know, so I had this conversation yesterday and I did not show up as my best self. And, you know, I was tired. uh, I was on a short fuse and I'll just, put it right out there. And, you know, let's cut each other some slack, guys. I say that all the time because, and the reason why I think people don't cut each other's slack is because they don't, they're not cutting themselves any slack. Um, and that was how I held myself for a long time too. I needed to get the A and I'm going to hold myself to that. And I'm going to hold all of you to it. And that just makes a very, very brittle environment. Mm. And so I, I think back to what you were saying, it's, it's we're becoming more human and instead of professional, I think that will come with that. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And it's, <laughs> yes, exactly. And I think this goes back to even this element of like this need to, you just said it, right? I have to be right or I can't show any fallibility. And um, I think you're right. And this is another element of, I think what you talk about this whole soft being strong. This is an element of being soft and showing that weakness. And yet in doing so, it's actually quite strong and helping to build, as you're saying, that psychological safety for people. I have someone who I work with now who takes on so much and I'm like, wow, gosh, so much capacity. I'm so surprised what's happening. And then I'll, and then one day uh, he'll throw up his hands. I can't do it. I'm breaking. I can't tell because he looks like he's handling it all. And so we've had this conversation three or four times now where I'm like, you have to tell me. I'm shocked that you've handled. So, well, I don't want you to think I can't do it. Why? I'm here to support you. Yeah. And so it just takes time. And it's ha- and now we're establishing more trust. He knows that he can tell me it doesn't mean I think he can't do his job. So it's 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 that cycle that you have to go through and build the build the trust that okay, I can tell you I can't do this and you won't think any less of me. You won't think I'm failing in my job. Yeah. Well, I'm part of what you're describing um is this living a little bit more in your heart. And, you know, you you talk about this interplay in the book between your head and your heart. And, you know, you had a couple of quotes in the book that I really love. So you had a quote from Michael Singer, you know, the mind is the place where the soul goes to hide from the heart. And then you talk about your coaching instructor who said, you know, and, you, and he was talking to you, your head comes to the rescue of your heart. And that probably happens to a lot of us. Um, and then you note in the book that you learn to bring the head and heart together, allowing you to live wholeheartedly and bring your full self to work as we've been talking about. And, you know, for you, these moments of loss and grief really served as learning experiences, you know, and you took the opportunity to deepen your learning about yourself and grow. And I'm wondering without that as a trigger, <laughs> you know, although one could say like the pandemic is really could be a trigger for all yeah. of us. Are there ways you'd advise leaders? Because we're talking about it's a journey. You know, how do you learn? How do you start to open up your heart and not just be in your head? And I know that's, you just said, it's not an easy thing and it is a journey, but how does one actually start to unpack this, you know, almost like uncover one's heart or how do you start strengthening your heart muscle, if you will? (laughs) Yeah, it's such a great question. (sighs) I don't know that I have the answer. I have thought about this a lot. And I think, I think, I think the first thing I would say is um, to notice, 
to try to notice where you're getting stuck, um, where there might be some dissonance between your head and your heart, where there might be tightness in your chest. When we allow our minds to override our the other signals coming from within us, because we've got wisdom within our bodies, right? Our emotional intelligence, our somatic intelligence, your body will tell you, your heart will tell you, you just have to quiet your mind to be able to hear those signals. And, I, and that's what mindfulness is all about, right? So whether, and which is why it's so hard, you know, quieting the monkey mind. So whatever that looks like for you, whether it's going out and walking in nature or, or sitting and being still or reflecting back on a situation that didn't go quite the way you wanted it to go. And then recognizing the pattern of what is happening. It's, it, it's, so it's noticing. And then when you reflect and notice, allowing yourself to stay with the discomfort, you might notice like, oh, that didn't go well. Okay. Let me be off hold on, <laughs> stay with it, <laughs> be a little uncomfortable. Maybe an insight emerges, maybe it doesn't, but you are deepening your ability, right? To self-reflect and self-observe. Um, and then again, I go back to, and do it with as much kindness and self-compassion as possible. Because if you're berating yourself while you're doing this, if the inner critic is on full tilt, you're not you're, you won't change. You're, you're going to hold on to that to that belief um, because, and I said this before, um, the story we've made up about ourselves, it's just a construct, but we don't know that. We think it's us. We think it's our identity. So you're holding on to it because you think if, 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 if you kill it, you're, you're killing part of yourself, but you're not. It's just, it's just part of our ego construct, right? And it's a blind spot. And once we get through it, you're like, oh, that wasn't me. Okay, that doesn't serve me anymore. Let me put it down. But that takes work to notice, to stay with it, to, to recognize, I'm okay, I'm going to shift a little bit here. Um, and we don't know what those unlocks are going to be. So you just have to kind of explore. Yeah, and it sounds like, you know, staying with things, you know, a constant theme on this podcast is kind of pay attention, you know, like be present with things like don't, as you're saying, don't just rush through it, actually kind of sit with it and see what the learning is. Um, and I think it's so important. Part of what's coming up in this conversation too, are these constructs, you know, these constructs that we either have for ourselves or that society puts on us, um, as you're saying, like these cultural shifts that are starting to happen in terms of how we're starting to also look at like what the work environment can look like or who leaders can be. And it takes really challenging those constructs and norms to kind of have a breakthrough. So I, I think that's really important, especially now as we as we come out of the pandemic. Absolutely. I, you know, one of my um, co-CEOs, he and I, um, we've, we've rumbled as, as Brene Brown says, and, um, I'd say a year ago, I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know if this is going to work. And a year later, I can tell you, it's one of the best professional relationships I have ever had because we did rumble and we came through it and he gave me feedback and I gave him feedback and I was vulnerable. And so was he. And, um, and 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 I can I can see us having um, better and better conversations because I feel like we can be really open with each other and vice versa. But you don't get there day one. 
you have, you know, you have to travel the path with each other. Yeah, that's so important to say too. Like the, again, we kind of like think so many things in life. I think we just assume we come out of the box this way or we should just immediately (laughs) and we forget about the growth journey. And that's even with the relationship, right? So that's, that's really, really important. Well, you know, so one of the other things I was wondering about was, um, counsel you might have to share with people during this time of both grief and trauma of the pandemic, both for individuals and leaders, you know, how might people find a way, you know, you've dealt with adversity in your life and found a way to get through and really come out stronger, learning about yourself and um, becoming, you know, a more powerful leader in the process. So, do you have any advice for how people might find a way to push forward during times of adversity or how you have, do you, do you have thoughts for how leaders today can hold space for employees as we come out of this time and really emerge in kind of an unprecedented time? Obviously you're within a company and kind of dealing with this yourselves in terms of holding space for your people. So, so any thoughts just on advice for individuals and then advice for leaders and organizations? I mean, I, from the company perspective, what's been so challenging about this is everyone's experience has been so different um, within the pandemic because everyone's personal situation is different. Some have felt isolated because they're single at home. Others um, have young children and are struggling with the work-life balance. Um, others have been furloughed. So it is hard to come up with a one size fits all. So I think the key from a leadership perspective is to be flexible and empathetic. And, you know, again, it's back to my, (laughs) you want to be principled. You don't want to have a hundred exceptions, but recognize that there are going to be situations that are going to require some flexibility and and how you hold that duality is, is really important. Um, I think it's going to be a process for all of us to go back into the office. And I think, uh, I think it's going to require us to really build our resilience. What I, what I'm doing, I've actually, I actually just hired someone, um, who came out of my coaching community, uh, and she is going to come in and do three workshops that really focus on, she calls it building adaptive resilience. And it, it's one part mindfulness for greater clarity It's one part um, really uh, encouraging flexibility in thinking, because now it's like, I can't go into the office. I I, I don't want to be around someone, you know, right? We're we're a little bit in a fear state. So how do we start shifting out of that and get a little more flexibility in our thinking? And then the last one is, how do we remember how to create connections so that we can rebuild trust? I think those are important things for us to be trying to do now. Um, I, everyone, the pandemic has shown me that everyone's relationship with safety is so different, right? And we have to, um, we have to empathize with what that is. You may not agree, right? And, and I hate that it's become this politically divisive thing. Uh, So um, I don't know if that (laughs) gives you, uh, I don't have the answer, but those are the things we're paying attention to, which is how do we build resilience? How can we be flexible while at the same time trying to be principled and, and, and meeting people where they are? Yeah, no, I think that's great. And I think, 
you know, I'm hearing that from some others uh, as well, that it's really important to kind of listen to your employees, ask them what they're needing, not making assumptions. And that's like, as you just said, like meeting people where they are. Um, and I love this idea of building resilience. You know, I even talk about just overall with sustainable ambition, this idea of like, it's not about building work-life balance. It's really about it, building work-life resilience. And building that resiliency in oneself, um, you know, there's multiple elements to that. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's wonderful that uh, you're investing in people in this way and really giving them the support to kind of uh, look at this because, you know, I was just saying um, to my husband last night, actually, I said, you know, people kind of make this assumption we're just running back to the office. And I'm like, you know, it really seems to me that we should be phasing this because people are so traumatized and kind of burnt out right now. They don't have the capacity to take on what it means to kind of you know, go back in and the amount of energy it's going to take to kind of readjust to a new normal. And so whatever that normal is going to be. So I, I appreciate that you're both, it sounds like, you know, taking it one step at a time in a way, but also like creating, providing the support, being proactive and like knowing that people are going to be support, need support as they transition back. Absolutely. And we, and we have a very long glide path through the end of the year. We're inviting people back in July but we're going to be very flexible until we get to September. And even then, we're still only uh, requiring people to come in two, three days a week until we get to January. And so it's like, you know what, you've got the rest of 2021 to sort through this. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I don't know why you do it any other way, to be honest. You yeah. can't you can't fight it. There is there, there's a natural sort of uh, energy happening now. And I think to do it um, more aggressively, you're just, you're just swimming upstream. Right. Right. Well, before we close, I wanted to ask you a couple of other personal kind of questions. Um, well, they cross over between personal and professional, but one was around taking time off. And I don't think I'm giving anything away by saying that you end the book uh, with your daughter, you and your daughter, Nadia, taking a year off and living in the south of France, which sounds phenomenal. Um, and you also write in the book, you know, we all need space to know how we feel, you know, and I think that's really important, too. And, you know, from my perspective, um, you know, sabbaticals can be taken for different reasons, but I'm curious, like as a chief people officer, what do you think about people taking time off, taking pauses? It's something I talk about around sustainable ambition. And I think it's important these days, but I also still feel like it has some taboo in the corporate world. Um, you know, there was a gap in your resume, you know, whatever it might be. And yet we all work so hard now. Like it's almost crazy that we don't take time off because who's working a nine to five job? I mean, a lot of people, some people are, some people are working multiple jobs, unfortunately, but I'm curious of your perspective on taking pauses. I, I highly, highly encourage it. I think you have to listen to yourself. I can't imagine a company says, I see a pause in your resume. That should tell you that's probably not the company for you. That just seems so 1990s to me. Uh, I think, again, listening to yourself, um, in my book, I talk about um, uh, brother David Steinel Rost. One of his, one of my favorite quotes that he says is, "The antidote to stress is not rest; it's wholehearted living." So if you're if if you're pushing it hard and and it and it's joyful for you and you love it, then you probably don't need to take a pause. 
But if you're in a role that is feeling like a grind or you're in a high growth situation where you're just, you know, like I need a break, then you need to listen to that. And so whatever that looks like, whether it's a sabbatical, whether you leave the company, whether you step down a little bit of your time, uh, I just... I just think it is the natural and normal thing to do. Now, the other side of that is we do need to build our our grit and resilience. You can't run a company if everybody's working 20 hours a week, right? But if there are moments where people are like, you know what, I'm tapping out for right now, I think we need to honor that. And it's interesting. I look back on my life. I have had moments without even, I didn't call them sabbaticals, where I would do that. I would just stop working or I would, you know, take seven months off here, a year off here. And uh, I think that it, ha- it has not hurt my career. And I think it has sustained me um, professionally and personally. Yeah, that's great. Well, I hope more, more and more leaders take your perspective on it. Um, I and think I think they will. <laughs> yes. And I think it's an important thing to realize, like pay attention to those companies that, that are reacting to it that way. Um, a final question I had for you, you know, you've been a single mother with a very successful career and personal life. And I don't know if I'm right in this, Layla, but it, my interpretation in reading the book was that even with the ups and downs you were going through, you carved out times for friends, perhaps, you know, personal health and growth. And perhaps that was also your way of building some resilience for yourself. But I'm curious what's worked for you over the years to achieve what I might from the outside call sustainable ambition. Like how have mm-hmm. you been able to kind of um, achieve this for yourself? I've thought about this a lot, and I think there's a few qualities I have developed or maybe I've always had and I've honed, but I just never think about giving up. I think it's the byproduct of of the super capable persona that I have held for so long, but it's, and it's not like I feel like I want to try and convince myself not to. It's just that I never actually really do. If something is important to me, I really care about it. <clears throat> even if it takes years, like writing my book. Now, if I was on a deadline and I had to, you know, uh, that, that would have been, that would have been, uh, uh, I think a much more stressful process. <clears throat> but once I started um, doing the work to get my story out from beginning to end, I mean, was six years. If you really think about when I first went to a writing workshop, and I only wrote for probably two years, but I just never let go of the idea. And so, or or even moving abroad, I thought about moving to France for two years before I finally did it. And so I I think about things for a long, long time. I realize that's my process. And it's just, it's, I'm digesting, I'm ruminating, I'm turning it over. And then when I move into action, it looks like I move fast, but you didn't see the two years where I thought about it. Um, And so, and I and I do think I have a growth mindset. I don't really see setbacks as failures, failures or defeats. I just it's just it's just something we need to work through. Um, as I've gotten older, I think um, I am just more grateful for, and I recognize the gifts that we all have. Um, I was an older mom, so I have always been so grateful for having my daughter. And I'm really lucky because she's pretty easy. 
you know, but again, I talk to friends that are like, well, not always easy. And so again, I reframe things to the positive part of the good and the bad. And I, I even when bad things happen, they, they don't stick with me. I, I eventually find the silver lining of the negative situation. So when I think of my life, it's like, yeah, there's been a lot of things that have happened that I didn't make great decisions. And, and, but in the end, it ended up being a learning opportunity. Um, I think that's, you know, being curious, being a lifelong learner. I think those are all things that go into it. I see the same qualities in you, by the way. I always have. Oh, thanks, Lena. <laughs> well, those are great things for people to kind of acknowledge and kind of nurture in themselves. So thank you for sharing that. And this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for being on with me today and writing this beautiful book and sharing your personal story and lessons with all of us. I really encourage everyone to get the book, Strong Like Water, How I Found the Courage to Lead with Love in Business and in Life. And Layla, where can people find you to keep in touch or to learn more about the book? You can go onto my website, which is laylataraf.com, and you can find the book at your local bookstore or online, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. Um, Hopefully it's everywhere. <laughs> yeah. And I will capture all of that in the show notes for today's episode. So thank, Layla, you. thank you again for being on. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Kathy. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sustainable Ambition Podcast. I hope you take away at least one learning or inspiration from today's conversation. Find more inspiring interviews and get show notes for this episode at sustainableambition.com slash podcast. Make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips, guides, and tools by signing up for Sustainable Ambition Forum, my twice monthly newsletter. Sign up at sustainableambition.com slash subscribe. And remember, it's not about finding work-life balance. It's about building work-life resilience. Thanks again for joining me. Speak with you next time.